0: Driving the highways of the southern U.S., I see them everywhere. The billboards for Cracker Barrel. Homemade doesn't cost extra, one proclaims. Checkers and dumplings, says another. Or warm welcomes coming right up.
1: And it's a combination of this comfort and consistency and ubiquity that makes Cracker Barrel not just a haven for many people, but perhaps the country's leading definer of southern food culture.
0: You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, Besha Rodell explores the cultural context of Cracker Barrel. What does this restaurant chain tell us about southernness, About nostalgia? About ourselves? For Besha,
1: those questions
0: inevitably also lead to ones of family.
1: Since graduating high school, I have always dated Southern men. My boyfriend of my late teens through my mid-twenties was a boy from Corinth, Mississippi. My husband comes from a family that has roots in Durham, North Carolina that go back at least five generations. There were a few in between that I'd rather not get into, but let's just say that Chapel Hill, North Carolina produces a lot of boys in bands that are hard to resist when you're 24 particularly the ones who didn't arrive there because of the University of North Carolina, but instead grew up locally, with indie rock and basketball in their veins. I am not a southerner, at least not in the American sense of the word. I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, the southernmost city on the mainland of the biggest continent in the southern hemisphere. I was brought to America as a teenager, and raised mainly in the Northeast, first in Hartford, Connecticut, and then in New York. If it weren't for those Southern boys, I might never have spent more than a beach vacation in the South, and I certainly wouldn't have spent the better part of 10 years there. But I did. My son was born in North Carolina, my career was made in Atlanta, and since leaving four years ago for a job in Los Angeles, I have missed the South so ferociously, it feels like a lost love. That wasn't always the case. My relationship to the South was fraught at first, and some of it remains fraught. My first southern foray beyond the beaches of North Carolina was in the late 90s. I was 21, and my Mississippi-born boyfriend and I drove south from New York where we'd been living to take a month-long summer job on Cumberland Island, off the coast of Georgia. Our job was to assist a caretaker in her work, restoring one of the old Carnegie mansions on the island. On Cumberland, the caretaker we worked for was a tough woman named Brenda, who wore earrings made from the penis bones of armadillos. She was excited to introduce me to my first real southern food, a big pot of chicken and dumplings. It looked and tasted to me exactly like a mix of glue and baby food. Once our tenure on Cumberland was done, we drove west. Across Georgia and Alabama and into Mississippi. We stopped along the way at the home of the boyfriend's grandparents, who lived in rural Georgia. Dining out with them was my first experience with the kind of southern salad bar that has very little green on it, but three kinds of jello. At the grandparents' home, and then also in Mississippi at the boyfriend's mother's home, I was served casseroles and jello salads and potato salads with a lot of sugar in them. I worried I might die of scurvy from lack of fresh vegetables. When the grandmother asked me what I saw as the main difference between Southern and Northern cooking, I said, I don't think Northerners put as much sugar in their food. This was not the answer she was looking for. On our way back through Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and the Carolinas, at some point, for lack of other options, we stopped at a cracker barrel. And by God, it was the first place I began to understand the truth about Southern food that it can be salty and not sweet, that it can include vegetables that aren't topped with marshmallows, that it can be deeply, deeply satisfying, particularly to a girl who feels as though she hasn't eaten much except box starch in three months. Here were turnip greens with funk and nuance, a place that served fried chicken livers that retained their creamy innards, a place where the corn was sweet and fresh and not doused with mayonnaise, or whatever that acrid creamy stuff was in all the corn casseroles I'd been served in Mississippi. For those of you who have never eaten there, I'm not going to tell you that the food is great, but it's probably better than you think it is. I marveled at the country store kitsch and felt desperately sad for the antiques that had met their fate as dining room decorations for a highwayside chain restaurant. But Cracker Barrel was, for me, one of the first indications that I might come to love southern food. Cracker Barrel was founded in 1969 in Lebanon, Tennessee, by a guy named Dan Evans. He seized on a number of cultural shifts and turned those shifts into a business plan. Evans came from an oil family and so was on the forefront of a move from country highways to interstates. The first cracker barrel doubled as a gas station, as did the ones built in the few years after it until the oil embargoes of the mid-1970s. Evan's idea was to take the kind of food and retail experiences you might have found on the main streets of southern towns and put them on the side of the shiny new interstates bypassing those main streets. This early understanding of the way people were going to find and frequent restaurants has never stopped being an integral part of Cracker Barrel's strategy. Today, they are the nation's largest user of directional advertising, those billboards along the highway that tell you where to get off in order to find a location. These things obviously worked. Today Cracker Barrel has over 600 locations in 42 states. They just announced plans to expand even further, launching a new fast casual biscuit concept called Holler and Dash. The other cultural shift that Evans took advantage of was just how much certain southerners would long for the south of their childhood, while change swept the region and the country. Cracker Barrel Marketing materials explain it like this.
0: Dan began to think about all the things that would make him feel comfortable were he far from home. Things like big jars of candy and homemade jellies, pot-bellied stoves, folks who let you take your time. He thought about simple, honest country food and a store where you could buy someone a gift that was actually worth having. What Dan had in mind was the kind of place he'd been to hundreds of times as a boy. It was a place called the Country Store, something every small community once had.
1: I can't think of a year in America and the South when people would have been more primed for that kind of nostalgia than 1969. The Jim Crow South was barely cooling in its controversial grave. The civil rights-loving counterculture was growing stronger than anyone had imagined it could, and was subverting much of what had, up until then, been sacred and unmovable. Everything was changing, and Cracker Barrel managed to capture and encapsulate the way certain Southerners wanted to see themselves. It still does. To many of us, Evans' longing for the restaurants and stores and south of his youth sounds a lot like coded language. Nostalgia for a bygone era is particularly tricky in the south, and that's exactly what Cracker Barrel is selling, in an imitation of the old country stores that were historically segregated, no less. Until the early 1990s, Cracker Barrel sold Confederate flag bandanas and Mammy dolls, which is hardly the worst of the chain's sins. In 1991, an intra-company memo called for employees to be fired if they didn't display normal heterosexual values. In 2004, the Department of Justice found that Cracker Barrel had been segregating customer seating by race, that black customers got inferior service, and that they allowed white servers to avoid serving black customers. In the Human Rights Campaign's 2008 Corporate Equality Index, Cracker Barrel scored the lowest of any rated food and beverage company for its treatment of LGBT workers. I could go on and on here. There have been lawsuits, settlements, and various other Duck Dynasty-flavored scandals. I don't mean to diminish any of that. In fact, I'm here in part to remind you of it. But I also believe that we tend to write off people and things and institutions that are flawed or other. And because of the circumstances of my life, I found that trying to understand those things and even find empathy for them is, for me, the only way forward.
0: Coming up, finding a place in a Southern family when that place isn't always comfortable. That's ahead. There is that donor music. Lodge Manufacturing has been making cookware in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee since 1896. And they've been a driving force behind at the National Cornbread Festival since 1996. You can celebrate 20 years with Lodge and the Cornbread Festival this coming weekend. Join the Friday night street dance and stay for the fireworks, walk around the car show on Saturday, or tour the Lodge foundry. You might also explore the area's historic homes before listening to some live bluegrass by Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder. Proceeds from the National Cornbread Festival are donated back to the South Pittsburgh community. Work up your appetite for cornbread and go support the festival, just as Lodge supports this podcast. Details are online at nationalcornbread.com. And now, back to Besha Rodell and Cracker Barrel.
1: Becoming a part of a Southern family, my husband's family, has not always been easy. Like many people, family, for me, is wrapped up in shared ideals, shared politics, shared food culture. These are not things I naturally share with the family I married into. In fact, the differences between myself and my in-laws feel utterly profound and sometimes unbroachable made even more confounding by the fact that we're all English-speaking Caucasians. I believe they find my attitude and politics and messy way of life more confusing than if they could explain it away because of surface differences. The differences are sometimes huge, but more often they show themselves in small ways. For instance, my mother-in-law has struggled to understand my love of vintage things. Occasionally, when we're on vacation together, she'll suggest a trip to the local antique store, which I know is a concession for her, a loving attempt to find common ground with me. And so, off we'll go to the antique store, and if it's the kind of store I like, the jumbled, dusty kind, she'll try not to look too horrified, but when I find something I actually want to buy, she's been known to say, well, Besha, that's just old. In turn, I don't understand her appreciation of the faux shabby doodads at the Cracker Barrel country store. To her, those are cute and not so old. This seems like a little thing, but in some ways I think it sums up a huge amount of our cultural divide. Her inability to see the worn beauty in something with a history, and my inability to understand why someone would find value in a replica of that old thing, one that's been sanitized and mass marketed. And yet. I consider the Cracker Barrel Country Store a triumph of marketing genius. There is nowhere else that so perfectly encapsulates the aesthetics of a certain kind of Southern lady, where that lady can get a pastel-colored cotton tunic like the ones Paula Dean wears, a pillow with inspirational phrases embroidered on it, Christian-themed fashion jewelry, seasonal lawn ornaments, and a box of old-timey peppermint sugar twists. It does all this without being overtly gaudy, And these days, there's a Pinterest-y, shabby-chic vibe to the place, especially if you don't look too closely. And then there's Cracker Barrel's audiobook lending library, from which you can borrow an audiobook at any location and return it to any other. I believe that it has seriously expanded the literary horizons of many retirees, particularly those who spend a lot of time in their RVs. In the past 10 years, Cracker Barrel has also become a major player in the country music business with its own recording label that has put out albums by everyone from Brad Paisley to Dolly Parton. Albums sold exclusively in Cracker Barrel stores have gone gold. I have to imagine that part of this success comes from a customer base that perhaps hasn't figured out iTunes. But it's also a commitment from Cracker Barrel not to leave those customers behind, just as Evans' 1969 conception of Cracker Barrel was a commitment to hold on to a past that was fast disappearing. Evans gifted the South with Cracker Barrel and its fake old country store, exactly at the time when the South was losing its real country stores. Just as Waffle House came along right as we were losing the breakfast counter, and CVS and Rite Aid became ubiquitous just as the old Main Street pharmacy-slash-soda fountain was disappearing. I understand why people like my in-laws miss that past. And I even try, through gritted teeth sometimes, to have empathy for those who are quickly losing the comfort of their cultural dominance. I keep thinking of something I heard in a documentary about Jesse Helms, the longtime North Carolina Republican senator. In this documentary, The author Alan Gerganus said that living in North Carolina was a little bit like being in a science fiction movie. I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, You go to the mall and look around at all the nice people, and then you realize that something like 50% of these nice people voted for Jesse Helms, and you feel as though maybe everyone will peel their faces off and reveal themselves to be monstrous aliens. How could these people, these nice people, Love and trust a man who once tried to make America's first black female senator cry by singing Dixie to her in a congressional elevator. I've now spent 15 years of my life counting these very same people as close family. Once, on vacation with their family friends, a discussion came up about Barack Obama's connection to the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Someone said, You can tell a lot about someone by the company they keep. How could he spend so much time with that man and not share at least some of his views? I spend a lot of time with y'all, I said. I know there are Southerners and Australians and Koreans who feel this way about the families they were born into. We love them, we try to understand them, we struggle with how to love them wholeheartedly while still acknowledging the unbroachable chasms that exist between us. I see Cracker Barrel a little bit like those people in our families. That one uncle you have who is old-fashioned and lovable, but also deeply morally flawed. Oftentimes these days, like Cracker Barrel, that guy is trying to do better. But you get the feeling he wouldn't if he didn't absolutely have to. I've spent much of the last year thinking about American food and what that term, American food, means to most of us. When you ask about American food outside of the U.S., people generally answer with a sense of disgust, and the golden arches invariably dominate the conversation. Even inside the U.S., if you were to ask what people consider American, many would immediately think of hamburgers and hot dogs. As writers and thinkers, we have deemed hamburgers and hot dogs important enough to cover extensively, They pass some sort of authenticity test, some bar of folksy import, for us to consider them. What we mostly haven't yet decided worth our consideration is the culture of food that most Americans actually eat. They eat at fast food restaurants, at chain restaurants, and out of cardboard boxes from the freezer section. I can't think of any other country where the things we focus on in the food media are so vastly different from what the population itself eats. This is partly because we'd like to change what people actually eat. And in some ways, that's a noble cause. There's a real aura of shame surrounding our country's true gastronomy. When we do write about the American diet, it's often in derisive terms, or hand-wringing over health matters, or issues of labor or the environment. These are all valid concerns. But they ignore the rich cultural context of a vast swath of America and the way its residents eat. Why do people eat the way they do? What were the political and cultural forces that caused, for instance, Cracker Barrel, to be one of the main ways that many Americans experience Southern food culture? I wrote once that people go to Waffle House for the comfort of sameness, the same reason that people are drawn to almost any chain restaurant, or middling motel chain, or particular brand of frozen pizza. And of course this is true for Cracker Barrel. One of the company's great accomplishments is its utter consistency in a format that's quite complex. The food, the country store, the roaring fireplace, the walls festooned with antiques. It's a lot to get right 600 times over. And it's a combination of this comfort and consistency and ubiquity that makes Cracker Barrel not just a haven for many people, but perhaps the country's leading definer of Southern food culture. Paula Deen is certainly more extravagant and visible and giddily horrifying a symbol, but Cracker Barrel is actually feeding and marketing to over 4 million customers all over the country every week. It should be noted here that Cracker Barrel has been extremely ambivalent about its own southernness and has made an effort over the years to avoid advertising itself as such, not wanting to alienate customers from other regions as the brand expanded. But if Epcot Center had a southern pavilion, it would look a lot like Cracker Barrel. I'm a little bit obsessed with Epcot, in part because it teaches so many Americans all they'll ever know about certain countries, and therefore has great sway over the way we think of Morocco, say, or even Japan. Much like Cracker Barrel, at Epcot these places are presented in a way that's more easily palatable and less messy than the reality of the situation. Part of what makes Cracker Barrel so weird is its Epcot-like fantasy permeating the very region it parrots. Imagine if, scattered throughout Manhattan, you could escape the smelly, dirty streets and wander into a clean fantasy version of New York, where everything felt like a magical carriage ride through Central Park, where they still served decent knishes, and where jazz greats sold their music exclusively. You can't tell me that place wouldn't be popular. There's an army of chefs and writers who have spent years trying to convince the world that Southern food culture can be found in the barbecue pits behind shacks on the side of secondary highways, on the tables of high-end restaurants and along Atlanta's Beaufort Highway. And of course it can. But the majority of the Southerners I know, the ones outside of Atlanta and the college towns, don't eat that way. My Southern family, the one I married into, lives in new construction houses on cul-de-sacs, they go to the mountains every year and drive directly to a manicured golf course, they don't eat the way I do, and they don't vote the way I do. For many Americans, I'd say the vast majority of Americans, the truth about southern food culture can be found as much at Cracker Barrel as it can anywhere else. Hell, Cracker Barrel actually defines and creates southern food culture. Take the hash brown casserole. It was introduced on the Cracker Barrel menu 30 years ago in 1985, and it's now a staple of church potlucks and other Southern gatherings. In places like Connecticut, where Cracker Barrel has two locations, it's about as close to true Southern food culture as you're likely to get. And to the Southern family I married into, whom I've come to love deeply and who have taught me so much about the meaning of family, Cracker Barrel mirrors back to them a version of the South they understand, the South they are comfortable in, the South they know. And that's a very powerful thing. Nostalgia is undoubtedly one of the strongest pulls of human nature, up there with love and sex and existential angst. Because we personally associate so much of what we're nostalgic for with our own innocence, our own childhood, and because nostalgia is such a powerfully rose-hued feeling, We tend to give it a pass, to assume it to be a benevolent emotion, if not downright sacred. This is a huge part of the Southern struggle, the necessary rejection of nostalgia as it relates to things that were sweet for only one privileged population. And yet, that rejection goes against human nature. It feels like a betrayal of our own faultless childhood souls. I'm nostalgic for those Chapel Hill boys, for the wilds of Cumberland Island and the innocence of that first Southern summer, for a time when things were less complicated. If Cracker Barrel has taught me anything though, it's that you should question your own nostalgia as ferociously as you question your darker emotions. Nostalgia will betray you, it will betray us. Cracker Barrel also taught me how to love the hell out of a turnip green. And for both of these lessons, I am grateful.
0: Besha Rodell is the food critic for the LA Weekly. She's currently working on a book about the way America really eats. Thanks to Jimbo Mathis for being the voice of those Cracker Barrel marketing materials. This piece was originally a talk for the Fall 2015 Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium in Oxford, Mississippi, You can learn more about our symposia at southernfoodways.org. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Jason Shaw, and Wienland. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. And thanks, as always, to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah camp Milam and to intern Dana Bialik. Coming up, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... Before you take to the road for any summer travels you have planned, the Southern Foodways Alliance wants you to know about its iPhone app. SFA Stories, which is free on iTunes, shares narratives collected as part of the SFA's oral history initiative. Read about our culinary standard bearers, view photographs, listen to their voices and map your way to find their workplaces with the GPS feature. And because the SFA iPhone app is free on iTunes, you can save your money for an extra slice of pie or a rack of ribs. Or, better yet, use that money for an SFA membership. Membership dollars support all of our work, including this podcast. Visit the SFA's website at southernfoodways.org for a direct link to download the app. Coming up on Gravy... What do you do when your southern town doesn't have the ingredients to cook the food you're craving? She said at one point she was so desperate for coconut milk, she actually grated it herself. And let me tell you, the image of my city slicker mother, coconut in hand hunched over a grater is unbelievable. Filipino food in the Florida panhandle. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance, and as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.